Welcome to the Analytics Power Hour. Analytics topics covered conversationally and sometimes with explicit language. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Analytics Power Hour. This is episode 230. Ah, analysis in all its forms. We love it. Or, I mean, most of the time we pretend we do. And, you know, all too often we see other people, and it's never us, jumping feet first into analyzing a data set before ever considering what's in there. This is a topic about structured data analysis and what is the ready, set part of ready, set, go when doing analysis. So let's talk about it a little bit. But like analysis, there are prereqs for a podcast, which include introducing my co-hosts, Valerie Kroll, Optimization Director at Search Discovery. Great to have you on this episode. Hey, party people. Excited for this one. <laughs> yeah, me too. And Tim Wilson, the quintessential analyst. And I know this is a topic you have a lot of interest and opinions on. <laughs> yeah, and opinions uh, about that intro, but save that for off off the mic. Everyone I've ever explained it to agrees with me that that's true. So, And I'm Michael Helbling. But we wanted to add some depth to this conversation, so we needed a guest. Violetta Apgar is the Senior Manager of Analytics Solutions at Indeed.com. She's a data scientist and has held roles in data science and BI throughout her career. And today she is our guest. Welcome to the show, Violetta. Thank you so much, Michael. It's, uh, it's an honor to be here and to have this conversation with you guys. Well, let's see how you feel after talking for an hour. No. no. So I think probably to kick things off, I'd love to just sort of talk a little bit about how you started down this path and some of your first findings and sort of what got you kind of thinking about this in, in a broader context. And then we can kind of jump into more details about it. Yeah, for sure. So I started working with data probably like right out of college. I majored in math, so it was a very natural path for me to go. <laughs> and I spent some years working in nonprofits, doing a lot of like database administration, inventory control. And then I went into like business intelligence. So I was like, I have no idea what it is, but it sounds interesting. And it seems kind of like very similar to what I'm doing right now. And um, when I got to uh, BI, there were pretty much like the type of work was, okay, well, let's get a request from stakeholders, do the analysis, do the request provide them with insights and results, and then they'll take the information and do the decisions. So very typical BI. And I remember when I joined Indeed for the first time, I started doing this, but Indeed has like complex products, like different product offerings, so many like different divisions of the business, types of like stakeholders and clients that they serve. And the information got like to be really, really complex. And I remember being like, okay, I get a request, I have very limited amount of time to complete it. I have to like think on my feet and I have to just do the analysis and move on. And the team I was working with specifically was the client um, insights or the client success. So they essentially provided these clients with information and insights about their like products or their competitors or like the general market information about like various jobs. And I remember being like, some, like some requests would be easy and we do them, but some requests they would come in and be like, okay, I have no idea what this means. I'm just going to go go ahead and roll with it. But at the end, when you provide the information, your stakeholder is like, well, that's not necessarily correct or that's not necessarily what I was thinking about or let's redo it. And then you'd redo it and then provide the results again. And you kind of start to do this dance. And then what I started to realize like over time, it's like, okay, if we just take a look, like a step back and spend a little bit more time 
and learn what they need specifically or what they're asking about, we can probably serve them better and not have to go back and redo the analysis many times. And I think we've all been in a kind of like similar positions, but I think that being in that situation, just having kind of redo doing it all over and over again for a couple of years, started to frame that in my mind, but it wasn't until I hadn't. So a couple of years ago, I had an honor to like start my own team called like analytic solutions. And really for us, the focus was a little bit more of kind of having that broader vision and broader picture. And me and my manager at the time, Peter, kind of had this vision. We were like, okay, if in BI, we used to like not have that ability to like have the big picture and have that discovery process and be able to investigate. Now let's actually frame a team around that process and see if we can like make analytic solutions and analysis by first spending like a long time in that discovery phase. Yeah. So that's kind of how it came about. I mean, it seems like you, to me, that's one of the signs of a sort of maturing analyst is realizing that just taking the request and taking the data at face value is like just a recipe for disaster. And we probably could have said you, you wrote a, a, post on medium like last year. And that kind of is what inspired us to reach, reach out to you because it really talks about kind of what you just described. I think is that if you, we have this urge to jump into the data and if we just jump in and make assumptions, Oh, we understand what the business was asking and it's a new data set, but you know, surely subscribers means exactly what I think subscribers means in the, in the table that it just, you get burned so consistently. And then like, I think as you were describing, you wind up having to do rework because you either don't meet the needs of the business or you actually made a bad assumption about what the data was saying or how complete it was. I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and I think kind of like, the big part of it is if you make those assumptions and you don't relay those assumptions to your stakeholder, somebody is going to end up making bad decisions based on that information. And really, like, I think one part of it is like knowing what you're dealing with. But the other part is like knowing those assumptions and, and telling your stakeholders, here's what we don't know, or here's what we have to assume, because that kind of puts them into a frame of reference for their decisions. So can I really make a decision if I make this assumption, sometimes yes, sometimes no, but that risk kind of gets delegated to the decision maker. So that's actually one of the things that I was curious about, especially as I was reading your very well-written article with that um, the approach and all the questions that you ask yourself as an analyst. So one of the questions that's in there is, is the data quality good? So when the answer is no, what is kind of like the logic tree that you think about um, with that? So I'm assuming that sometimes it might stop your analysis altogether. Sometimes it might mean that you have some additional data to collect. Perhaps it shows up as a footnote or a big caution, use results with caution sign when you're presenting results. I know you talked about assumptions, but I'm sure there's like a variety there. And I would, I would love to hear how you approach the answers to those questions as you explore your framework. Yeah, for sure. So I I think like data quality in itself is just like such a big issue in like analysis and data science. But I think like for data quality, there has to be a strategy. So going into it, you kind of have to like have like, okay, I know that it's feasible to stop this analysis or I know it's not feasible. And if it's not feasible, then what can I do? 
Is it possible to collect more data? Is it possible to write out those assumptions? Is it possible to kind of reframe the question or provide insights that are like framed differently so that the data quality is not hindered? And it really depends on like what the issue with data quality is, right? Is like, is it missing data? Is it missing data points? Is it incorrect data? Is it incomplete and like a specific sense that biases the information. And I think like that kind of gets like, you can really address that like piece by piece. But I I think if you have a strategy and you communicate with your stakeholders well, and you know, okay, I know that I can stop this if the data quality is bad or I have to keep going and I have to provide something to them because like, I think like, especially if you work in the corporate world and you work a lot with like sales and CS and client facing teams, you always have to keep going, <laughs> almost always have to keep going. So um, uh, communicating that strategy ahead of time, I think is the most important key to dealing with that. Can I ask on that? Cause that brings back memories of some specific instances where dug in, we're assured, you know, the, the, the data is complete. It goes back six years for whatever you need to do dug into it, you know, or it could be an experiment was run and the experiment was, was botched, you know, and there just, there wasn't randomization. So all sorts of those, if you find that and you go back and say, wow, this is not what we thought the data was going to be. And sometimes it feels like it's the stakeholder. It's not the data they assumed that it was. And then, like you said, you, you still have to give them something. So you say, well, we can, we're not going to be able to do everything we thought we could, but we can do this other little thing. Or we can use this other technique and sort of try to get at it. And it's, it's not going to be what we thought we were going to do. Have you run into that? The challenge with that sometimes seems like then the assumption becomes, oh, well, the smart analytics data science people figured out how to work around the crappy data. We don't have to go and fix that in the in the future. Like it's one of those where like you have to be as aware of, wait a minute, we're going to do this thing. That's really making us uncomfortable, but it's the best we can do. And somehow we have to make sure that there's not an assumption that, Oh, everything's still just as good as if the data had been in good shape. Have you run into that? Do you have thoughts about how to deal with that? Oh yeah. Yeah. And and all the time. And I think a lot of it is, is not like, I wouldn't even say it's a kind of the stakeholders for it because a lot of it is there. So there's data producers and data consumers. And a lot of the time, sometimes they're the same person, sometimes they're not. And if they're the same person, you're lucky because you can kind of, you can kind of like, okay, well, for next time, let's do this and let's figure out a strategy to make sure like we can run analysis on this. But if they're not the same person, then you're kind of like stuck with like, okay, now we're, we're dealing with data producers who produce like butcher data and data consumers who need an answer. And I think that really comes down to like the risk of decision-making. So are they sending like a space shuttle in space? Are they performing surgery or are they just telling their client something to upsell them? And it really depends on the kind of that like threshold because there's so much risk that they can take on with faulty data and you can produce some insights and you can produce insights under those assumptions, right? In that box. But if you're asking them to take on a lot of risk, that could end up being like really bad for whoever their stakeholder is or whoever their client is. So I think it, you really have to do like, and I think because in the end of this, it's a lot to do, but you have you kind of have to do like that risk assessment yourself and also make sure that your stakeholder knows what risk they're like taking on. Because like in some situations, it may not be as 
dramatic or as bad and maybe they can get away with some faulty that like not necessarily faulty analysis but like some analysis that relies on heavy assumptions and poor quality but in some situations it's just not possible so you kind of have to go back to like your data that gets back to your point that like you you really need to understand the the domain and not just the domain of the business in that case it's the what is the what are the stakes of the decision being made and even if if they're really high stakes and the data is just not going to be there better to have that discussion and to say well it's a really high stakes decision so i i guess i have to come up with something and cross my fingers that that it works out (laughs) yeah exactly i couldn't have like phrased it better myself that's literally exactly the point all right it's time to step away from the show for a quick word about pyrrhic pro Tim, tell us about it. Well, Pillock Pro is easy to implement, easy to use, and reminiscent of Google's universal analytics in a lot of ways. I love that it's got basic data views for less technical users, but it keeps advanced features like segmentation, custom reporting, and calculated metrics for power users. We're running Pillock Pro's free plan on the podcast website, but they also have a paid plan that adds scale and some additional features. That's right. So head over to Pillock.pro and check them out for yourself. Get started with their free plan. That's Pillock.pro. All right, let's get back to the show. And when you're having this conversation, this like risk tolerance calibration with your stakeholders, I'm assuming that's happening before you're delivering the analysis, right? Because this is a process that you're asking, it's a call to analysts to think about before they get into the actual coding part of all of it, right? So is that a conversation you also have with stakeholders beforehand? So yes and no, right? Because sometimes you don't necessarily know until you even like dive into data. But a lot of the time, like you should be able to assess, okay, I'm getting this data from data producers. Can I talk to them about it? Can I talk to the engineers or whoever is making that information, the scientists who are running the experiment to verify its quality? But sometimes it just has to be like a communication process. And it's not like it can't always be like once and done. You just have to like exercise a little empathy and kind of go back and forth with them and be like, here's like my honest opinion. Let's keep going back and forth and see like what like what are we trying to do together and where that threshold is. I like that a lot. One of the things that that makes me think about is you talked about that when you were starting this new team with your manager, that you kind of wanted this to be a new way of working or kind of like your new ethos that you were adopting is this type of practice. Can you talk a little bit about if there was any change management that you were kind of guiding your stakeholders through? Because I'm assuming you talked about like really fast turnaround times and some quick analyses, and now you're inserting a much more thoughtful process and a lot of times having those conversations you know, upfront and it's, it's framed in a completely different way. So what was that like? If you could share Uh, some details. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was (laughs) difficult, (laughs) Uh, but it it was, um, I think it was well received after a while and we kind of had to do like this, I guess like elevator pitch with some of our stakeholders and some of our business partners. Well, first of all, we went from calling them stakeholders to calling them business Mm, partners. I love that. And then they were like, Oh, we're partners. So now we're like, we're starting to work together. And then we're like, okay, cool. So here's what we're going to do. We're actually going to try to learn as much as we can about what you're doing, what you're trying to do about like the subject matter that you're working with. And then we're, we're going to do, do the solutioning process. So we, we moved away a little bit from like just doing analysis to more like, like analytic solutioning. And in that sense, we're like, we will take a look at everything. We'll kind of map it out. And then we'll tell you, okay, I, we know you think you know what you want. And we will either confirm that or we will tell you, yes, but 
a little bit differently. So it was uh, it's a little bit different than just like I guess doing analysis. But in that sense, like the team I'm doing right now kind of does similar stuff. So we do like analysis, but we also do data modeling and other solutioning. But we kind of employ or try to employ the same uh, principle around it. And we found it the change management was difficult, but eventually, like after we had a few successes with it, it was easier to work with the business partners and be like, "Oh, okay, it's actually it's working. So let's keep doing what's working." And we had a few failures. So was that? Was that the business partner? Because I this again is giving me like flashbacks to the case where no, no, no. I just asked you to do this thing, and the business partners or the stakeholders, the business thinks that the way this should work is they make a request through whatever mechanism, analysts do stuff with it, and the results come back, and and that's it. And if you go to them and say, "But no, help me understand more about your." business to me it feels like it's a it's a split sometimes people love to talk about like their business they're like oh let me let me pour my heart and soul out to you you're a receptive ear nobody understands all the challenges i have and that's great but then i definitely feel like i've run into and i'm I'm curious if the ones who say no i made a request give me the answer and was that literally like, well, you just kind of muddle through with them until you have some successes with the other partners and eventually they, they come along? Or are there ones that, like, I'd love if you've got, don't name names, but if there's anybody in your mind yeah. that you're like, oh, yeah, this one was a doozy and it took, you know, years. Um, it's still taking years. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. I think well, there's also like individuals who they, they know exactly what they want and they're not as willing to kind of like really open their mind and like think about the other potential like information that they could be provided. But I think that's okay too, because what we can do is like, if, for example, if they're asking for one thing, we could say, Oh, look at all the other insights we have. Or another example of what, like we dealt with was if a person like asked for something, okay, here's the information, here's all the assumptions and here's all the other info you should know about what you're asking for. And it kind of like, I think it's good again, because if it helps them make their decision, that's what's best for them. Um, But they have to kind of like know what, again, what risk they're taking on and making that decision. And my team hopefully is guiding them through that. So, one thing I wanted to come back to is sort of around knowing the data or getting up to speed with the data. Cause sometimes you work in an environment where you're dealing with the same data again and again. And so you develop a really deep understanding and fluency with that particular set of data. But a lot of times in organizations, or if you're in the role of like an analyst or a data scientist, you might have brand new data sets thrown at you in a project. So can you talk a little bit about sort of, okay, well, how do you kind of build up a data fluency or what process do you use for that? Because I think in some cases, it's sort of a ongoing thing that you use all the time. And then in other cases, it's sort of like, okay, now I've got to go in and explore this data specifically. Yeah. And I think I've like dealt a lot with it. I, indeed, especially because there's a lot of like product changes and new products that are rolled out and new features. So it happens all the time. And you kind of have to like go into it and you can so what my team and I do we have like this discovery document at least for like some of the analysis projects and I list out okay here's everything Mm -hmm. I know about this product about this feature and if I don't then I'll schedule some calls and schedule like some follow-up and read on the wiki and literally just learn everything here's like kind of the the facts 
and then I have like a dictionary. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay, here's what this term means. Because even at like, even for example, at indeed.com, right? A, we have like a site that ho- hosts jobs, like hosts all the jobs theoretically. But even the, the definition of a job uh, can be different depending on who you ask and depending on what kind of decision they're trying to make. Is it a job posting? Is it a job position? Is it a number of openings? Like, is it one of the openings that, and it really changes. And even like so simple definitions like that can get lost in translation depending on who you talk to. So I think kind of like having that upfront, if you, especially, especially if you don't have that vocabulary yet and you start something new or you're dealing with a new subject matter, is so, so vital to the success of your project. This is definitely one of the things that I'm interested in. I'm very much a process person. And as people know, I say I'm a process person because I actually hate talking about process. So in my mind, I was thinking about like, okay, these are so many great questions, so many great like thought experiments to put yourself through. I know where I work at Search Discovery, there were some analysts that collaborated on an analysis approach outline document. So shout out to Ryan DuPont, Sandberg, and Julie Hoyer. <laughs> I'm sure she's dying. She would have been dying to be on this episode with you. But that that document has some of the, the similar things in there, like what you talk about in your article. Not, not everything the same, but there's like definitions and assumptions and approach and the hypothesis. And so you, you mentioned a discovery doc. And so that's like why my ears perked up. So can you talk a little bit about how you operationalize what you do here? Like, is it the same document all the time and you just customize it for the different you know lines of businesses that you support or does it evolve? Is it pretty stable? Like I, I would love to hear you uh, talk a little bit about the, the process side. Yeah. So that is actually a good question, but it's actually not the same document. And every time there's no template for it and each individual analysis or each individual project will require typically a new one. And it's because usually we kind of tailor it to whatever analysis we're doing or whatever decisions are going to be made at the end. Because even like two similar questions can be so, so different and will require like different like parts of the business. So for example, like if my business is moving to like from, let's say, pay-per-click model to like pay for like an uh, application model, right? Like Indeed is doing. So all of your questions will be completely framed like completely differently, whether you're on one pricing model or the other pricing model could be the same question, but a slight change in the definition of what the customer is paying for causes for like a completely different perspective. So a lot of the discovery is actually framed around the question that's being asked as opposed to just kind of like general knowledge. So that's really interesting that the document is different every time. The way you explain that makes perfect sense. But I'm curious, just again, thinking about the operationalizing of all of this, does that make it really hard for analysts to join your team? Um, like, does someone not come new to your team from the outside? Does someone have to kind of be promoted within so that they can really appreciate the nuances of the business and, and the unique way that your team approaches it? I'm just curious on that one, too. Yeah, I think... Definitely could be difficult, but we try to make it easy. I also, so when I have individuals work, I usually have them work together in like small teams, the division of labor uh, or division responsibilities. Like we will have like a reporting lead, analysis lead, data modeling lead for a project. And generally they tend to like learn from each other and support each other. But I think they can also like refer to old like discovery mm-hmm. documents and old documentation for different projects. I think we're still trying to find ground footing. So I think it could be difficult. I can see that. But it, yeah, I don't know. I hope previous knowledge makes it a little I, easier. The, the putting two or more analysts on it, I think is, 
that makes so much sense. And again, I'm thinking probably processing trauma of the at times <laughs> being told like until you've been burned a few times. I mean, that's that that is one way to learn. Keep touching the hot burner a few times and you learn that oh, maybe now I should not make a bunch of assumptions, not write them down, make assumptions about the data, make assumptions about the business users need and run off and do stuff. But to have a little bit of that slow down and what are what are my assumptions and how can I write them down? The idea of having a couple of people saying, let's do this together so we can bounce off, you know, like this field says job, job post date. Okay. Do we, do we both think that's really obvious what that job posting date is? Somebody may say that better be one of the fields that we look at the distribution of it. Cause if there are a bunch of them posted in 1972, that's probably an alarm bell. The reality of, Work seems like, well, oh, but that feels like redundancy, but it also seems like in that early phase, you've got to get a ton of payoff to have more thoughts on this upfront work. Four eyes instead of two seems like it could head off all sorts of problems. Yeah, for sure. And I think, well, or also, well, first of all, it makes it easier to gather as much information as possible, too. But also, even like, for example, like the example you gave job post day could be the day the job was posted, or maybe it was the day it was reposted, or maybe it was the day it went live for the first time, or maybe it went live the most recent time, because you can pause jobs. Um, <laughs> it, there's like so much, like even when you start breaking down like a simple, you always see like on Kaggle, even like, you see like a, a simple data set and it looks so simple and so easy, right? But then you start digging into it and you're like, oh, there's, there's actually so much that like this column could indicate and could be, and we like know nothing about it. <laughs> and I think that way, like, I feel like analysts are kind of like victims of like the, the Dunning-Kruger effect where it's like, we, when we first look at it, it looks so simple and so easy, <laughs> but like, Unless we start digging into it more, <laughs> we'll just assume that we know everything about it. Have you ever sort of had the opposite where the, the data is sort of stopping you at first, but then as you dig in and learn more, you find like these alternate paths sort of thing, you know, because I think sometimes that happens too. Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah. I think like, I think the more complex processes you deal with, then you'll see that probably, especially like financial systems and things like that. So Val had started to go down the path of your team a little bit. And I kind of want to go back to that and just get a better, I love the idea, but I'd love to understand a little bit more about sort of what drove sort of the creation of it. But I am also curious as to, do you hire people directly in from outside to be on that team? I'm not, I'm not about to ask for a, for a job, even though these, this question may start to sound <laughs> that way. Like, are they coming in? It does feel like kind of to, to Val's point that they would be people who are a little bit more experienced. It would be hard to take someone, you know, straight out of university and drop them in because it seems like there's some nuance there. But at the same time, you also said you're trying to train them and team them together. So I'd, I'd love to kind of understand how you put together a team like that. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, so maybe I can give you a little bit more information about my team. 
but I have hired very experienced people and I have hired somebody right out of the university and both of them have been very successful. Um, and from internally and externally as well. But so my team, uh, is a solutions team, like I mentioned, it's analytic solutions. So some stuff, what we do is analysis, like statistical analysis, data analysis, insights and recommendations. Some of the stuff that we do is kind of like putting together like core data sets that enable our business partners to do analysis as well. Um, and some of the is just like data visualizations and things for individuals who are not like trying to dig too deep. Um, so we kind of do a lot of it. And the way like when we came to be really the goal was to we need somebody who knows the business or who at least wants to know the business so we can empathize with the business and provide them with like better insights and recommendations so they can make better decisions that are not like inaccurate or not based on like heavy assumptions. So I have in my interview process, I actually have like uh, an analysis uh, as part of the interview process. And um, the analysis is very, very like nuanced. It's actually a very, very simple data set. I hope I'm not <laughs> giving it away to any of my future <laughs> But <laughs> it's a very, very simple like transactional data set of like, like, like an example is like a housing data set where like, for example, like a, like a, uh, a set of houses that would have been sold like last year in a specific area. And it's like five columns. It's super easy. And when you look at it, you're like, oh, that's so simple. Like, I know everything about it. Or you can look at it and say, oh, let me assume that I know nothing about it. And let me try to figure it out. And a person who looks at it and says, I know nothing about it. Let me ask questions about it. Make sure I clarify all the assumptions. Make sure I... Uh, clarify all the biases and find all the biases in the data set or within myself when I look at the data set to analyze it, those tend to be the most successful people. And those are the ones that I hired. In the assignment, do you leave it open to they can come back and ask? Because that, that seems like one of the challenges with assignments is that when it gets handed over and it's like, well, this is totally artificial. I would never just take a data set and run with it. So are they able to come back with the mechanism and actually probe. And now you may be giving people tips because probably the way they disqualify themselves is by not <laughs> doing that. So, uh. yeah, so they can definitely come back and probe, but usually by the time they come back and probe, they've already made assumptions um, about the data set and have not, and have based their recommendations on those assumptions. So they're kind of encouraged and we, we encourage them to ask questions, of course, um, but they're encouraged to ask like literally to get as much information out of their interviewer as possible. Got it. Okay, we should change the interview one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm, I am kind of curious if, if there are there any like particular job services that uh, sites out there that you get good candidates through. No, that's that's kind of a joke. That was <laughs> oh, okay. uh, come on, good Sam. one, Sam. <laughs> Don't share those secrets. Keep uh, those close. Uh, <laughs> Or it starts with an I and ends with an D. Oh, there you go. Yeah. I was making a funny, Michael. If you weren't following it. You weren't picking up what he was putting down, Michael. That's yeah, yeah. I never share where I find candidates from. That's my. Those are the secrets. So one of the things you talked about earlier is creating empathy for your stakeholders. And one of the things that you did in this team is, is reframe even that whole concept of your relationship and change it from stakeholders to business partners. And I'm curious about how 
much the activity of sitting down together and talking about the data and the definitions and some of those assumptions. Has that gone a long way too for building some of those relationships? Obviously, like the proof is in the pudding when your recommendations are way more spot on and something that they can immediately take action on versus, well, actually we need to massage this. I need you to go back. So I'm sure that's like a great proof point, but I'm curious about the the exercise of sitting down kind of shoulder to shoulder and really understanding what it means to interact with that data and what they're charged with. I'm wondering if that had an impact too on some of the ways that this was all adopted some of the successes. Yeah, definitely. I, I think like, I mean, again, we don't deal with like the same exact data set every single day. And it's a lot of it is actually just piecing together different data sets from like different engineering teams and then putting it together. I think a lot of like the processes and a lot of the things that we do as a team have emerged from those conversations that like my teammates had and it has emerged from literally just applying in practice what we talk about. So like an example is like we would assemble a team to do like an analysis or build a dashboard for our business partners. And then it would come back like a, like a month later being like, Oh, we should change this or we should change that. Like calling our stakeholders, business partners actually just emerged from, putting everyone in one room and one of our uh, direct reports, Sean, shout out. <laughs> um, he, that was like one of his suggestions. He was like, Hey, why don't we go call them business partners? And it really has, I think had like tremendous impact in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, I like it a lot, but I like that a lot. <laughs> it, it's interesting. Cause we do, we teach the same thing. There are partners and that helps frame the relationship differently. Yeah. Yeah. But I think they also need to know that, like, the partnership goes both ways. And yep. it, just because, like, you're my partner doesn't mean that I'm not mm-hmm. yours. So it has to be, like, reciprocated. Yeah. yeah, but the stakeholder concept kind of makes it that order taker. They just tell you what they want and you just have to figure out how to fix it or do it or provide the analysis without necessarily the interaction that you've kind of developed as a as the process. Mm-hmm. Which I, I think this, yeah. that's, that's excellent. Does does that sort of reframing of both the kind of how you think about them and how they hopefully think about you and how you interact, does it lend itself to them getting a deeper understanding of some of the nuances of the data? You mentioned earlier you know, some of the business partners come in and they know exactly what they want, but, and I think Val, maybe you were kind of coming at this as well. They know what they want, but they may not realize that what they want isn't directly available. If what they want is pull data from the job posting system and pull data from the, the leads system and, you know, just smash those together and then, do mean analysis and what they're missing is there's messiness where that join doesn't work as they would want it to. Does that come up where you can say, well, let's, I've got to sit down and, and we've got to talk about this because we have to make some decisions. I'm just, I'm seeing some people from my past saying, I don't want to get in the details. I know what I want and it's your job to go make it happen but there are judgment calls involved there and you really need their help on making those judgment calls. Like does that, which means then the fourth time you're working with that, st- that oh, stakeholder, eh, bzz, 
shock me. Um, <laughs> the fourth time you're doing a project with them, with hopefully then they're more open. Like I'm, I'm envisioning this kind of nirvana where you're moving forward and it becomes much more, more kumbaya. But the business partners are getting a more nuanced understanding of the some of the limitations of data, I guess. Yeah. So I think then you have to ask them why. And I think why is like such a good like word to ask because sometimes they don't even know why. And it helps them in their own like discovery journey to figure out why they need this, right? They could say, oh, I need this, this, and this. And then you ask them, okay, why do you need this? They'll start actually thinking through the entire process. And it sounds different in your head than it sounds out loud to somebody else. And when you say it out loud, it starts like starting to form into actual, oh, actually, maybe that's not necessarily what I need. So that's a really good strategy. But also, like, it, it really depends on how much trust you also have with your like business partners. There was one project where um, I was working with like an enterprise sales team and uh, we kind of took all of their requirements and we just said no. <laughs> they kind of they provided us with spreadsheet and provided us with email. We're like, that's nice, but I don't think that's what you're looking for. And we started, we're just like, let's start with like just one metric. What is the most important? And they're like, we don't know. And we're like, okay, let us think from your perspective. So we sat with them and like we shadowed them and we talked to them. We're like, oh, okay, so the most important thing you want, you want to know is revenue. <laughs> So let's start there. And we gave them an, like uh, like a dashboard and here's your revenue numbers. What else is going to help with that? And we let them play around and kind of do the cycle. And I think maybe like just doing yeah. the cycle too helps a lot. Um, but also literally just asking, like, why do you need this? In that process, it sounds like you're doing a lot of education as well. Is that accurate to say? Yeah, and and in a certain sense, like building the data fluency of these external teams of these business partners in terms of their own data, what they are like, that's a, that example you gave is like a, as there's so many versions of that, that you could probably share or people could share like, like, oh, they don't even know their own data. They don't even know what they're trying to get from the data necessarily. So it's. It just shows the validity of the approach, I think, in a, in a lot of ways. Well, but I think there's a, a piece of it where, which I think I've often struggled with, that if they, when they come with that big list, they are, that is the best intentions and they are often, they're trying to help. They're saying, I don't want to come to you with, I don't know why, what I want, so let me just write all this stuff down and, and and I'll give you more and more must be better. And there's that. And I've, I've worked with some analysts who will, that can come back as saying, I mean, you said, no, you were being a little flippant. I'm pretty sure you didn't say, thank you very much. No, throw it out, sit back (laughs) down. Like I've, I have dealt with analysts who that was kind of, they almost had contempt for their, I mean, they weren't business partners. They were like, they don't know anything. So it does, and I think Val, you said empathy earlier as well, that there's a piece of even saying, why do you need that? There's like, why, why, why? There's like an attacking, abrasive way of doing it. And then there's more of a, well, help me understand why so that I can better serve you. So I can't believe somehow this worked its way into like Michael's emotional intelligence (laughs) world yeah (laughs) but but do you like when you think about who you're hiring and how your team is working like 
it does seem like the empathy, emotional intelligence, communication skills, the relationship building, how do you do you look for that? Do you coach for that? Do you have activities to help drive that? Or is it not that critical after all? You just tell them to no, piss off, and come back with better requirements. Uh. <laughs> um, so, yes, 100%. We look for that, we hire that, and then we also train that. Um, and I think, again, like my um, previous manager, Peter, uh, and I – we had so many discussions about that before because it's we we found that like those soft skills are so much more important than like your like array of technical background. Like you can give me like a stack of resume <laughs> like information about all of your like technical abilities, but it's like that's so easy to teach. Mm. But that like ability to kind of like think outside of the box, think from somebody else's perspective, think critically, that's so hard to mm. teach. So we try to hire people who already have that, even if like their technical background is not as strong. And then we'll continue to train it. That is such an important yeah. message. I wish every analytics team everywhere could just hear you say that right now, <laughs> which some of them will. Just <laughs> awesome. Yeah. I so agree with that. I have another question for you, slightly different direction. So in your article, you juxtapose your approach against the exploratory data analysis book. And I have, I had heard of that, but I don't have as deep of mathematical background or training as you do, not by a long shot. So I'm just curious, is that like a really, was that a really big part of your training? Like, was that practice something that you brought to the role in like your early days? And then you kind of like discovered this over time? Or was this just something you kind of knew was out in the ether? And this was something that you had to kind of combat with your approach? I'm just kind of curious about some of your experiences and inspiration there. Yeah, so that's a good question. So like the exploratory data analysis, the EDA is essentially done like a lot like in statistics and data science primarily, uh, but it can be done in like data analysis too. And it just allows you to take a look at your data set like and twist it and turn it kind of like a cube, like Rubik's cube multiple times. But where I think like the reason I kind of juxtapose it with it is because discovery has to be like a proceeding step. But actually like, like John Tukey himself like said that like statisticians like play in other people's backyard all the time. That's all they do. And by that he meant like, you you can you have the skill set to like work on any problem within any subject matter, but I think kind of you have to explore that backyard to understand like what you're dealing with or what kind of information you see, like because backyards are made completely differently. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I think that's kind of like the if you have discovery, like if you have that knowledge, then even like the exploratory like data analysis comes easier. It allows you like when you look at and you twist that data different ways. You know what your columns mean. You know, like, all of your definitions. You understand where, like, that information is coming from or what it means and what kind of bias you can have, right? Because there's, like, you can have, like, some kind of confirmation bias already. And it, unless you check yourself, you may produce insights and recommendations that are, uh, like, confirming to some kind of opinion that you may have. Um, so they're, they're complementary I like the, like the backyard. Like if you, if you just dive into the data, which I, this is like my knock against somebody who says, I want to be a data scientist. I did a six week boot camp, and that means hand me a data set. And all of a sudden they make assumptions that this data set defines the backyard that I'm playing in. Whereas if they haven't gotten the skills to say, let me understand what that yard 
looks like. Now, once I understand what the backyard is, I probably want to take the data set for the backyard and dig into it and say, does that match up with what I'm hearing? That's like, I think like the first part of the exploratory data analysis. Does, does this make sense? You told me this backyard was representative of the population, but my data set says that, that 95% in the, of the people in the backyard are over 70 years old. Like that doesn't, that doesn't make sense. So the fact that they're complementary and, and we will, we'll definitely link to the article. It is short, but it is really, really, really interesting and making the case to say, you got to figure out what the backyard is first and then do the other parts. I think that's oh, such a, such a great, great point. Yes, Tim, it's such a great point. And now we definitely got to start to wrap up, but this has been actually been an entirely great conversation. And Violetta, thank you so much. I think the way that you've expressed some of these ideas and the thought process you've put into them is, has done such a beautiful job of taking some fundamentals of, of analysis and data and, and sort of framed them in a new light and kind of put a new facet to them. And I just, uh, this whole conversation has been incredible. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Oh, no. I mean, it's seriously, this has been fun. And so one thing we like to do is go around the horn and share something that might be of interest to our audience, anything at all. And it's called our last call. And uh, Violetta, you're our guest. Uh, do you have a last call you'd like to share? I do have a last call. I'm so excited because I prepared for this. <laughs> um, but my last call is actually a video by Veritasium. I don't know if you guys oh, are yeah. familiar. He's a YouTuber. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a, a physicist, a YouTuber. Uh, I think YouTube is now his uh, full-time career. And one of the more recent videos that um, I watched and I shared with my husband <laughs> and I shared with um, my team um, is called Is Success Luck or Hard Work? And um, in that video, essentially, um, Veritasium kind of like shares that we all have some like egocentric bias where we think like we experience our life like through our ourselves, right? So we spend most of the time with ourselves. So we think we do actually more um, than everybody else uh, or we perceive ourselves to do more than everybody else just because we spend more time there in, in our bodies. So we, we tend to like underestimate the role of like other circumstances or other people that play on our life and on, uh, on the things that we do, which also means that we tend to like underestimate how much like circumstances or even luck play in our success. And he talks about like how it can be like, it can be helpful to think that like our achievements are completely our own. And because it gives us confidence and gives us like kind of that boost to keep going and working, working really hard. But at the same time, if we do succeed and we are like very successful, we also tend to have like survivorship bias too, because we don't see all the people that also worked just as hard, if not harder, but failed due to circumstances or bad luck. And I think it was a very powerful message (laughs) for analysts and all people around. So I really wanted to share it. Thank you. I think the upper middle class white dudes like really, really need to hear that message right ah, i think ah, I don't know that. <laughs> i'm here because all right the hard work tim well you know just pull yourself up by your bootstraps okay tim what is your last call i i am gonna do a quick twofer just because i'm gonna i'm gonna i am gonna say people should go look at violetta's uh 
medium page because you do write on to say that it is a broad range of topics. Uh, today I wound up getting sucked into another old, the making a sky map in Python, which is another old, old post. And then there's stuff that is way over my head and, you know, diving into Julia, uh, was another interesting, uh, thing. So that, that's kind of a quick one. It is just, I, the, the, I, I kind of want to get into your brain is you're like, I think I'll do this other completely different thing and write it up is, is fun and fascinating. Then my main last call is that, uh, Leah Pika passed a guest on the show, friend of the show. I think all of the co-hosts know her, her book is now out present beyond measure. So that's also the name of her podcast, but it is as, as Seth Godin blurbed it, a simple, clear and constantly overlooked wisdom. It's time to stop wasting time and start making a change happen. But her book, it is a hefty tome about designing, visualizing, and delivering data stories that inspire action. So check that out. I I can't say I've finished reading it because I just got a copy, but I'm diving in and kind of flipped around in it a bit. And it's like Leah got to express the stuff that her wisdom has been building up for years and years and years and written it in a four in four acts so there are four acts to it with intermissions even so uh check that Ooh. out Ooh. nice all right and val what about you what's your last call um so this one is completely unrelated to today's topic but you know throughout the pandemic we were all on zoom more and more and you know turning ourselves into potatoes and all the interesting backgrounds and it kind of felt like zoom wasn't going to surprise me anymore but i was on a call recently with Manuel da Costa from Effective Experiments and he had this crazy dynamic background with this like live agenda and it had a timekeeping aspect to it and upper right I'm like Manuel what is all these shenanigans on your Zoom. And he made me aware of the Zoom app marketplace. And I double-checked with some people at work, and I am not the last person to discover this. So hopefully this is relevant for some (laughs) folks. But um, there's actually a lot of like powerful tools with some kind of cool integrations beyond just those note takers that like 12 of them join every call nowadays, which gotta love that. Um, but even like the timer one, which you don't have to ask for like extra admin approval. Like if you're trying to keep people on an agenda and you've got like a status call or something like that, it can be really helpful. So I've had fun playing around with that. So if you haven't checked out the Zoom app marketplace, there's some fun things in there for productivity and scheduling meetings and interactive agenda. So maybe you might find that fun. (laughs) How about you, Michael? What's your last call? Nice. Well, you know, I like to run a crisp status meeting, so (laughs) that sounds right up my alley. All right. Well, my last call is something we've probably talked about on the show before, but I wanted to rebring it up, which is our good friend Kelly Wortham, who's also been on the show, has a community of folks who are dedicated to the discipline of experimentation and optimization. It's called the Test and Learn Community. And recently it became a nonprofit, which is so super cool and just so cool to see that community grow. I think they have a Slack group now that's over a thousand people. And so if you are involved in that space at all and experimentation, that is a great group of people who are very similar to you and you should go and we'll have a link to that in the show notes so you can check it out. So that's my last call. 
All right. You've probably been listening in and having some brainwaves happen about, oh, my gosh, that's a great idea. Or I want to learn more about that. Well, if you've got any thoughts, we would love to hear from you. And the best way to do that is probably through the Measure Slack community or our LinkedIn page or on X because we're still there for some reason. And that's it. And um, I don't know, Violetta, are you active on social media anywhere that people could reach out to you? Or well, obviously, you have your Medium blog post, so we will provide a link to that. Medium, LinkedIn. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> LinkedIn, that's a perfect place. So, no, great. And um, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, it's been a real pleasure to get to know you a little bit better and the work you're doing. And indeed, it's pretty awesome. And of course, no show would be complete without a huge thank you to Josh Crowhurst, our producer, maybe especially this time. Especially this uh, with all the little things that the Sorry, listeners Josh. won't hear, but Josh will. But we really appreciate everything you do to make things happen for the show behind the scenes and make the show a reality. Appreciate it very much. Once again, uh, Violetta, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate you spending the time with us. And I know I speak for both of my co-hosts, Tim and Val, when I say no matter where you're at exploring that data, remember, keep analyzing. Thanks for listening. Let's keep the conversation going with your comments, suggestions, and questions on Twitter at, at AnalyticsHour, on the web at AnalyticsHour.io, our LinkedIn group, and the Measure Chat Slack group. Music for the podcast by Josh Crowhurst. So smart guys wanted to fit in, so they made up a term called analytics. Analytics don't work. I love Venn diagrams. It's just something about those three circles and the analysis about where there is the intersection, right? This, this Riverside platform doesn't like you, Tim. Fine. But the Riverside platform makes me sound like a Jerkosaurus Rex, because in the last episode I kept cutting him off. <laughs> I can't hear Val either. I also cannot hear Val. I was on mute that time. Oh. Oh. <laughs> you know what? Gotcha. Now you're just fucking I with us. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like, this is the worst experience ever. Okay. <laughs> Val, she already said her nerves were coming down. You don't have to do more screw-ups. Like, okay, Val's are going up. Yeah. Yeah. This is what happens when you give me producer responsibilities. My uh, face is red. Uh, it's too much pressure. Um, okay. Rock flag and business partners. <laughs>